Welcome to the Long Come Norwich podcast, an effusive, energetic, effective endoscopy of Norwich City football fans' opinions. I'm Tom, and I'm joined as ever by ACN founders Lorne, John Punt, Hello. and it's the warmest of welcomes to the first scorer of a competitive Canary European goal, F. Anakugu. Thanks, guys. Hi, everybody. There's still no football to look forward to, so we figure we may as well look backwards fondly at one of the few times Norwich occupied a higher standing with their fans and the public than they do now. Um, so who better to, to, to look backwards uh, with the nostalgic eye than, than their fan? Um, but I think we'll actually kick off by um, actually getting your opinions on the, the state of football as it is at the moment. Um, what's your gut feel or what are you hearing whispers-wise as to how they're going to get these last 10 or so games played? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, last ten games, my gut feeling is that is that they'll be played at some point. Thankfully, the you know, well, I say thankfully. I think everybody would like to see the Euros played, of course, but it appears that uh, league football at the moment takes a massive precedence over what's happening in Europe. And so, I think you know, there's that. Uh, I think there's that sort of uh, desire for league programmes to, to be finished across the continent. So I think UEFA will try and lean on the on the football federations if you can, you know, to try and play the games as late as is feasibly possible, whether that's July or August, to make sure we have some kind of conclusion, which I think is a sensible thing all around, you know, to be honest. Um, so, you know, we will get to decide um, who actually wins league, who qualifies for Europe, who gets relegated. Um, so on. I think you know that will make uh, the fans, you know, more, you know, you know, more than anything, you know, satisfied. You know that you know, you know the league has been finished properly. How think... late do you think they can go, Fan? Given that they're going to have to finish in time for the Euros next year, and they'll obviously yeah. they'll need to have a summer break before they start, and then pre-season training, and possibly some sort of mid-pre-season training now before they go back. Yeah. So, when do you think the latest they can sort of start and finish would be well... without? Ruining it. Uh, it's it's really difficult to say because obviously you know everybody connected with the industry and everybody you know um, outside of it as well is is governed by what's happening right now. So I suppose nature's in charge, isn't it? You know, to a large extent. Um, I'm certainly hoping that we can probably get going sometime in June and uh, we can probably finish the domestic calendar probably within five six weeks because there's only nine games left to play. Uh, one or two teams have one or two games more than that but yeah you know the players will probably be able to squeeze it in within six weeks and then just be extended for the UEFA of you know for UEFA competition um so yeah so if if we're sort of done by mid-August then the players will need that much of a break will they because they would have probably had a couple of weeks you know to get back into into match uh shape and then we can probably be going again by early September which is probably not too late is it you can then just have a not a slightly truncated season in terms of league matches but maybe um tweaking um the cup competitions especially you know for England that has two cup competitions to play so i think everybody has to be flexible uefa probably have to be um accommodating as well and i find a way to make sure that the season finishes in time in other place and then get a rest of course for the euros next year what do you think about the, uh, the the talk there's been of if if they are to uh, rush this rush these last yeah. few games through, and that there was talk of doing like a, a World Cup format um, where where the, the, the clubs are all going and staying somewhere 
um, maybe even doing that, you know, to, to the far east where the, the chances of getting infected might be lower in a few months' time than they are here as we go through our kind of rolling peaks and troughs of infection. Um, yeah. what, what do you, there's been some talk, uh, and, and like the Liverpool fans in particular are, are acutely kind of paranoid about there being an asterisk added to their name when it comes to kind of the, the league title because of how, you know, synonymous with coronavirus this season is going to be. Do you feel that's actually something realistically that, that could happen? And, and would that be fair to, to Liverpool and this squad of players? Well, firstly, I don't think... Um... I don't think it's possible. I can't even envisage a scenario where, you know, the league will be shifted, you know, to play football in the Middle East. Um, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's fair on the fans, whether they can actually, or, you know, would have the opportunity to get back into the stadium after after conditions have changed. I think it's got to be finished here. Um, I think all the players would prefer that as well. The broadcasters, I think, would prefer it. Um, so yes, I'd be I'd be amazed if that were the case. You know, logistics-wise, it would be very difficult. Where would you play it? In, um, in one or two small of the uh, in one or two of the small um, Arab nations, I don't really see how that would work. You know, transporting all the players, all the officials, all the medical staff, the broadcasters as well. Um, yeah, I don't see that one happening. With regards to an asterisk, you know, for Liverpool, <laughs> yeah, you know, that would leave a sour taste in the mouth. Um, even if they were awarded, you know, the title. I don't. First of all, I I don't see that the league, you know, would be declared null and void and be cancelled. I think that's virtually impossible. I don't see a scenario where that would be acceptable to anybody. Um, but yes, if the league were handed to Liverpool fans, they'd be pleased, but it would be tinged with a lot of sadness. Um, the players, I think, would feel very frustrated. I think they would feel cheated out of not winning it on the pitch um, after playing, you know, the full 38 matches. So. Like I said, you know, we have a we have a we have a large window now, from whenever, from let's say the end of this month up until maybe the end of August, you know, to get things done. And hopefully, we you know people's lives, you know, will be not put at any further risk, and and uh, everybody will get will be will be able to get back and play in a much safer fashion than it is, you know, that and then it certainly would be now. On the Liverpool um, side of things. Mm. Klopp is obviously one of the prominent managers who have voiced their concerns about um, player exhaustion and, and, and fixture congestion. So it's it's ironic in a way that you now need some some real um, fixture congestion in order to get the, the title won <laughs> in, in in a kind of normal fashion. So it's actually going to benefit Liverpool to to have a, a bonkers twelve months of playing almost constantly um, in order to get it done. But and just to, just further on on Lorne's point before, where he asked about how late can we leave this. Specifically on that, we've seen pictures and videos on social of um, of players, you know, on on a bike and on a treadmill in in their home, in their gardens, and you know, bench pressing their kids and stuff. What? How long? How Better long? Bench you... pressing someone else's kids. Well, well, yeah, social distancing, bench bench, <laughs> bench press distancing. Um, but in like in with the current speed of elite sport and and the, the, you know the the speed of the the game at the, in the Premier League level now, realistically, is it surely it's going to take at least two weeks solid, kind of um, mid pre season until they're going to be fit to go? Because otherwise, surely there's such a risk of muscular injury and soft tissue injury from just not overexerting yourself to the extent that you're suddenly going to need to on game day. There do yeah, seem to be teams already going back though, don't they? Like Tottenham um, got caught out this week where small groups of players were meeting up in parks and stuff. And I think there is a sense that players are starting to go back to training together. Yeah. Is... Well, first, yeah, first of all, I mean, 
I've not seen the pictures of the of the Tottenham players, you know, but I have heard of it. It's not very smart to begin with, is it? You know, they should be. Um, uh, but you know, following the guidance right now that that everybody else has to right now, obviously, yes, you know, there there have been people flouting the, the rules, but there are footballers who are, of course, um, much more recognised. You know, the most recognised sportsmen in the country. You know, I think should, should be setting a better example. I can under I can understand their frustration, but that frustration is for everybody in the nation right now, and only really only key workers or people working in absolutely essential services, you know, should be doing that. Um, so that's disappointing to see. Um, but I mean, what are we now? Th- three weeks into lockdown, is it? Um, yeah. If, if this were November, for example, I would say even with a three to four week break, I think, you know, the players could probably do about 10 days training and, you know, be ready to go again. But when you look at where we were in the season, you know, the middle of March, you've played, you know, you've played 29 league games, you know, Almost everybody's played a few games in the League Cup, in the FA Cup, or the, the big boys have played games in the Champions League, Europa, Europa League, etc. So it's enough in the tank, really, especially for the experienced players, mentally as well as physically, to know that or to feel as if, you know, at that stage of the season, you know, players, when they have three, four weeks off like that, it, you know, for example, if you get injured in March, I know from my own experience, if you get injured in March, mid end of March, early April, you're out for too long, three to four weeks, you know, the body starts to shut down. If you've played, you know, for five or six years or longer in the game, sort of knows what's happening. I've got a break, have I, three to four weeks? It starts to turn off as if it's it's end of season. So you've not only got you've not only got that break, you know, mentally, uh, you know, as well as I said, you know, the players will be feeling much more deflated now than they would be at any stage of season. Unless, for example, you've lost in the Champions League final, you've lost... Uh, big league matches to get relegated or to lose the title, so that's going to be very difficult for the players to, you know, talk themselves. It appears right now we've probably got what, another three to four weeks of lockdown, so that's that's seven weeks. That's almost like a full summer off. Um, so I would say at least three weeks, at least three, you know, three competitive weeks. No matter what they're doing at home, you know, doing their own individual programs, yoga, stretching. If yeah, I don't suppose that many players have even got a pool, you know, in uh, in their houses or anything like that. So what they're doing now is just is really what we call ticking over, but it's it's probably it can only account for ten percent of what they will require, you know, to get back onto the pitch. So I think you know some will you know you know three to four weeks you know before it can be really it can be judged safe. I think you know for the players to sort of mentally get back tuned in, you know, two weeks and then you know the extra two to sort of get their body back in shape because as you because as we said already. When you played so many matches and then you all of a sudden you're asked a lot in the last five or six, you know, that can be damaging, you know, to the bodies very, very quickly. That's it. That's interesting you say that because I I am still of the opinion that the there is a there is a chance that the season will be kind of paused as it is. Um, and I think that the issue you're going to have is the ramifications of that. The, the reason being that you, you're either going to have to say, right, next season is going to be shortened in some way. You know, everyone, we're going to draw, and then you go into, well, you can't play some teams at home and some teams not away. Points per game is is just as fair, as in, it's just as unfair as stopping now, if you see what I mean, because there's, there's, there's teams that Norwich, for example, haven't faced at home, who, yes. you know, our home games look very attractive. And, mm. and and actually we you know this is we 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 kind of one or two games into the run where we really thought we could save our season. So mm. so so on that, what's your what has what has been your your take on on Norwich's approach to the season and give 
let, let you know, let's let's say that we are going to be come back and these games are going to be finished. Um, putting aside the fact that form book is going to be more out of the window maybe than ever, because who yeah. knows, you know, who's going to take best mentally to to this to this um, this gap. Um, but yeah. What, what sort of chances do you think Norwich would have of staying up with the fixtures that they've got? Uh, well, without looking at the fixtures, um, I would say that, you know, even if they were facing, you know, the teams directly above them in all the remaining nine games, it would, it would still be extremely difficult. And the odds are, are heavily stacked against, you know, when you're bottom of the table, you know, in um, approaching, you know, the, well, you know, we've entered the last leg already and then um you have to say that you know you're least likely you know you know to make it after the um after the last home game which i can't remember what it was now yeah i was at the last game yeah i was at the Leicester game actually fantastic win great good performance um but then you know you probably say you know you need another three four wins you know straight away you know to be able to give yourself up you know to climb above one or two and to be right in that pack and if you're not managed to do that all season in the preceding 29, that's 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 asking a lot, you know, mentally and you know, and physically as well. So it doesn't look good, but you know, maybe this break, you know, will do the players um, a great service in a way that they come back refreshed, uh, feeling, you know, what this, you know, we were down before, you know, we can almost treat this as a new season, you know, if you like, you know, the last last few games and um, and plays if plays if it doesn't really mean much, which is very difficult to do, of course. In professional sport but if you can play that way you know play with the kind of freedom that is difficult to to get unless you are unless you're one of the best teams and uh, you, you know there's every chance but all the other teams will be you know saying that um you know to themselves or should be you know the ones who are in a relegation scrap as well so you know, i mean the boys have done great anyway it was always gonna be difficult without making you know uh, really good additions to the squad um so to be in with the fighting chance i think you know with nine games left is is not bad anyway, but of course, you know, when you are at a football club that's it's, it's used to Premier League football before, then, you know, the fans, you know, sometimes just want a little bit more. But by and large, I think, you know, they've been extremely supportive, you know, every time I've been to Carrow Road and on the road as well when I've done games. Um, you know, the team, you know, the fans have been right behind the team. And that's why, as I said now, you know, you know, well into the last leg, there's still the opportunity, you know, to pull things around. I'm interested in that because obviously you, you, you've just touched on the fact that you covered um, the games in a, you know, kind of with your broadcasting hat on now. Um, yeah. Just going back to the COVID-19 stuff, how many different um, scenarios are for you, the producers and your other, um, your other kind of contacts throwing at you in terms of, you know, we might need you to come to this game, we might need you to go to that game, or, or have you not got anything at all in the diary at all from, from now on? There's, no, there's nothing even penciled in. No, nothing at all. You know, they've not said anything. I know you touched briefly uh, before about making them sort of uh, having a World Cup style uh, format, you know, to finish things off. And I heard what I heard one or two whispers, nothing official, about maybe playing uh, or having a couple of games on TV every day uh, for two, three weeks, maybe like, maybe every other day. I think some, some championship matches as well, which I think, you know, the fans would love, wouldn't they? You know, to get, you know, two, three games on live every day. Um, See, I think if if they were behind closed doors, I don't think that anyone would love that. I watched one of the, um, I think it was on the German games that they played behind closed doors just before they stopped all the football entirely. And for five minutes, it was a bit of a novelty, but that really quickly wore off. And it felt like watching a training session. And after five minutes, I just turned it off because I wasn't interested. And I think the same would be true of the Premier League in that there's a real sense 
from people at the moment, like, oh, yeah, we've got to play the games, we've got to play the games, let's play them behind closed doors, it'll be great mm. if they're on TV. But I actually don't think they'd be that good if they were on TV. I don't, I don't know that it would get the viewing figures that people expect. And I agree with that. Tony, uh, be... I completely agree with that. But uh, FN, I'd be really interested in, as a professional, playing behind closed doors psychologically, how, would that, how do you think that would affect the players? Because so much, there's a symbiotic relationship between fans and, and players. It, it, that kind of ebbs and flows throughout a game. If that's taken out of it, it just doesn't feel like football anymore. It would be very strange, I can imagine, for the players to deal with um, maybe the opening 15, 20 minutes of, of any game, or indeed maybe you know the first game. I've, I've never played in a game under those circumstances. I've actually commentated on a few behind closed mm. doors. I don't remember the uh, um, first game I did. I think I've done three. One was in um, one was a Champions It might have been a Europa League game, maybe a Champions League game, about two years ago in the Balkans. I think it may be in Red Star. Their fans had been banned. There were no away fans. Eerie atmosphere. But if I'm being truthful, after about half an hour, I forgot that there were no fans there. And I just got on with my job. And I think the players actually would do as well uh, because they're very good at adapting to situations um, and realising, you know, what's at hand. You know, the job at hand is to win, to play against the opposition. Just before the lockdown as well, I covered the um, PSG and Dortmund game in the second leg. I did the first leg in 2-1. I did the second leg where PSG won and went through uh, with no fans. I mean, there are quite a few fans, fans outside the stadium because the PSG ultras are gathering, you know, within a like thousand or even more. So I've done a couple of games like that. And like I said, very quickly, as a professional, you switch off to what is not there and just concentrate on what is there. I don't think it affected the quality of the football. It was a good game. Um, of course, we would have had... And, you know, in an atmosphere, you know, we didn't have one there. Um, so I was able to, to sort of turn off that there was nobody there. And I, did, I do honestly think, you know, that players, you know, will be able to do that as well. I understand what you guys are saying about, you know, no atmosphere, not a great spectacle for TV. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I was just, I was probably actually just thinking with my broadcasting, you know, hat on and a little bit selfish as well. I think, you know, the, the, you know, the broadcasters would just be so desperate to get TV back on football. And <laughs> yeah, you, lots of fans will be happy about it. Um, a few will, a few may not care that much. You obviously get, you know, quite a lot of casual observers of teams. Uh, but I think overwhelmingly, I think, um, I think, you know, they would just be, you know, so glad to have that relief, especially if they're still locked down. That I'd be surprised if they gave it a big, you know, a big thumbs down. So you mentioned they're covering um, the Champions League and you've done Premier League games as well. What's the, uh, I know you've done Bundesliga in the past and, and lower league football. Is there, is there a particular, um, uh, is there a particular type of coverage that you really enjoy, a particular league or a particular country? What's the element of it that you really rub your hands together when you know that fixture's coming up? Um, actually covering new players and new leagues. I've, um, I first, the first uh, block of broadcasting I did from about 2006 onwards was covering the French League, actually, Liga, um, with, um, with IMG. And it was, great. it was great doing that because I still think the French League is probably the best feeder league in Europe. You get so many good young players who come through, uh, go and shine on, um, obviously, with the big clubs in France. Uh, they go to Spain, go to Italy, come to England, go to Germany. Um, so, so that was a good, it was good grounding, uh, good for your knowledge, you know, teaching you how to work hard to do your research, 
to be open to different types of football, to be open and uh, knowledgeable about different players from all over the world. So I've always liked, you know, doing the foreign leagues. You know, it's so like I said, I did the French league for about five or six years. Then they lost the contract, IMG. Um, and I've done the German league since on and off, uh, more on and off, and uh, quite a few years doing doing the Spanish league as well. I've dipped into the Italian games, but never on a regular basis. So the games or the, you know, games I've done most, mostly I would say in the last 10 years have been from Spain and from Germany. Um, so, yeah, it's been great. I still do the Premier League as well, you know, for the broadcasters here. But I, I wouldn't say that I enjoy the foreign leagues more. Um, I just like, I, I love the new faces. I love seeing people who um, fans of the Premier League won't see here for maybe two or three years later. You know, I saw Pires long before he came here. I saw Payet before he came here, um, long before. Um, so those guys already, you know, I knew them, you know, and many others, you know, many of the African players as well. And, you know, so that's good, you know, to, you know, broaden your knowledge. And as I work on international stuff as well, the African Cup Nations, World Cups as well, you know, that knowledge is, is vital to me. So I've never, I've never liked to just stick to the Premier League. Um, of course, you know, th th that gives you more profile here. But, you know, for me, that's not what it's been about. It's been about knowing as, as many people um, in the big leagues in Europe, you know, as possible. So it's difficult because you have to, you know, you sort of never... You never put yourself away from the game um, because there's always always another league to watch. There's always you know games to look at, plays to look out for, who's doing what in different leagues. But yeah, you know I think it stood me well. And um, of course, like I said, I think I've got a bit of an advantage when I do the Premier League stuff. Some of these guys who all of a sudden come well known here, I'm sort of ahead of the game, you know, which is always nice. Is there any um, main objectives or goals you've still got then from a behind the mic point of view? Think things you'd like to tick off you've not done yet? Uh, yeah, there's quite a few stadiums I'd like to tick off. Uh, I've not done many in Europe. I've done a couple around the world, but uh, the big ones around Europe, you know, the Bernabeu, uh, New Camp, uh, Allianz Arena, um, San Siro, um, although I've played there, so, but it'd be different from a broadcasting point of view. So, yeah, because I'm, I'm not doing a high-profile game, so the domestic broadcasters here, then I don't get to tick those boxes off, which would be nice, but it's not something that I, I'm really chasing. If it comes, it happens, great, fine. If it doesn't, um, you know, no big deal either. Uh, you know, I always wanted to do a World Cup. I've done that. I've done the opening game of the World Cup and I've done a World Cup final, you know, for you know, for ESPN. So I don't think it gets any bigger than that, really, does it? So I ticked that one off the list. And that wasn't even, on, you know, on my radar, you know, when I when I was doing stuff. I just thought, well, it's what, you know, it's what I like doing. If they like my work, it allows me to do more stuff. And it happened, so that was just a natural evolution. Um, you know, so to, you know, so to, uh, to do another World Cup final would be great. Um, uh, I was supposed to be working on, on this year, as that would be my first one. So that's been postponed, of course, but look forward to next year. And, yeah, you know, just keep on, you know, doing matches and, and hoping that uh, you still enjoy it. I still am after 14, 15 years. Was it something you knew you wanted to get into as a player, that you wanted to go into the media side of it, or was it something you kind of just fell into? Yeah, fell into is the is the way to describe it. I, <laughs> I had no, uh, I had no, I never really thought about it. Honestly, I sort of yeah. It's I think if you if you've got an angle, I would say it's easier to get into it. You could be a player from Venezuela, from Nigeria, from South Korea, or whatever. If you play long enough in one league, you become recognisable, and they invite you um, onto onto TV or or behind the mic. My uh, way in was 
doing stuff, some stuff for the BBC for the African Asian, I think 2000, 2000, yeah, I was in, um, I was at, that was at Sheffield Wednesday then. And I came down one or two days during the week after training to do some matches and that was it. I started doing some, you know, some stuff for the BBC um, the year before I think I retired. And then the year I actually did retire, 2002, I went to the World Cup. And did commentary then, you know, with no experience at all. I was also the player at the time, so because somebody pulled out two weeks before the tournament. So, you know, sometimes things just fall in your lap, and then you have to be good enough to take advantage. So, yeah, you know, that was the start. Then it was sort of on and off for a few years before I started doing regular stuff. You know, three, four years later. Um, so yeah, I fell into it, but yeah, you know, once I started doing it, I loved it, and um, I've not stopped. I've not stopped loving it still. But I suppose if you if you love the sport, then you know you'll always you'll always have that you'll always have that feel for it, won't you? Or you you'll, you'll always always feel as if it's you know the thing that you should be doing. Um, and if you're not if you're not particularly interested or qualified, you know, to do anything else, and it makes it a lot easier, a lot easier to remain in the game. <laughs> so you mentioned being able to, you you've played at the San Siro. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about that um, that European run that the Norwich had uh, and the time you spent in your career uh, with Canaries. Um, f- first and foremost, you, you joined in March 1993, which obviously you don't see these days. Um, so, yeah. How, yeah. how come it's near the end of the season, but not quite? Sorry, say that again. So, so you, you joined in March. So, you yeah. know, how, how come you were transferred so close to the end of the season? Oh, I see. Uh, yeah, it was. I actually signed on deadline day. I don't know, whatever, whenever it was then, 22nd or 23rd of March. Um, and so I came up the day before, um, day before the Villa game, wasn't it, with six or seven games to go that night, two ninety three. Oh, was that the 1 0 where we beat yeah, Villa 1 0 at home? Yeah, it was where, just, it, that was it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, where John scored, John Paulson scored. So that was my first yeah. taste of Carroll Road. I was in the ground that Not bad. Yeah, so I'd, I'd had talks with Mike in the afternoon and um, and Robert Chase, and then uh, I was still, you know, we're still thrashing out a few things, watched the game, and then wrapped everything up the following day. Um, I, I, I'd be, been injured the first three, four months of the season. I was at Bournemouth. I'd had an operation at the back end of the season before and was out all summer, um, August, September, October. Didn't start training again until November, and then I came up with a bang in in December and had a good three months up until then. So I don't know what the background to, to what, uh, to, uh, to how Norwich has sort of scouted me or been watching me. I would imagine they probably watched me the season before, but anyway, I think, um, my view on it now is that I think Bournemouth and Norwich probably, uh, secretly had a deal, maybe shaking hands on a deal as it were, maybe quite a few weeks before and just hope to try and tie things up without attracting too much more interest. Although, you know, they there were one or two of the clubs interested. And then I, I just got a call, you know, the day before, uh, two days before before deadline day, I had a chat with Tony Pulis, and he said, Norwich had been in for you. You know, do you want to go and speak to him? And, yeah, you know, so I agreed. I jumped on the train up to London, met my agent, um, and we came up. So, um, yeah, I think Mike wanted to do a deal before the end of the season when I was out of contract and where I would have been, I think, a lot more attractive to quite a few more clubs. And, um, yeah, so... Things can happen very quickly, can't they? You know, from not knowing anything was happening to two days later you signed and you jumped up a couple of divisions. So we had a hell of a team, and obviously we're going going on the clappers that season. So what was yeah. it like fit, fitting into to that? How welcoming were they, and how, how how quickly did you feel you you kind of fit into the to the squad? Obviously you got some goals early doors, but but actually fitting into that established squad, how how did you fit in? 
Yeah, good bunch of lads, which always makes it easier. Um, mixed age group. Oh, well, I say mixed age. Most of the lads who were regular in the first team were probably quite seasoned, older than me. Um, so it was a very comfortable squad. Uh, knew a lot about themselves. Comfortable with the way they played. Uh, well grooved, you know, playing well enough. You know, you have to be if you're top of the table, don't you? With six games left in the top flight. Um, it was it was actually frustrating because I didn't get any side, <laughs> which you know, mm-hmm. you know if you if you've been playing well enough, it doesn't matter what level you've been playing at. You know, you think you can just jump in and do what what you've been doing. Um, so yeah, I was I didn't actually start until the last game away to Middlesbrough. Uh, so by that time, I was a little bit a little bit. Um, I was a, I was a bit peed off actually with Mike, you know, that I'd not had a start, especially when you lose a couple of games, you know, and, and there's so much at stake, and there's a chance to win the league, you know, you you think you can come in and make a bang and make and make a big difference, which I think I could have done, uh, but I understand of course as well why he was loath to change things, and because uh, the guys who were playing had done so well, you know, from you know week one, um, so yes, um, so it was. It was great, but it was also frustrating at the same time, uh, and ultimately quite disappointing that we finished third when it was a great chance, you know, to finish higher. Um, what, so, yeah. On that, is there any? Was there any? How much disappointment um, is there on the on the kind of the European run and the way that 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 finished? I mean, I, I looked back at some of the other teams that we could have ended up with in that in that cup competition, and you know, it, you know, instead of playing Bayern Munich and in international, we could have had Tenerife or Crete. And we, we, you know, we were playing the yeah. eventual winners, and we could have, we yeah. could have faced Crete in that round. Some unbelievable, some of the trash that was in that competition, and yeah. we basically had, all, we, we, had to, we had to face some. I think Cagliari or something were like semi finalists, and you, you yeah. think, what? How? What? We have to, we have to be like the only English team ever to win in the Olympic Stadium, like in yeah. the European competition, to even get to the third round. I know it was, uh, it was crazy, really, wasn't it? You know, to play two of the biggest names in. European football back to back was asking a lot, but it brought great profile, wouldn't it? But I think I would have probably gone. I would have been happy with us getting to the semi-final, for example, and um, and facing a bit of the dross, like you said. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, but uh, I wasn't aware that Crete were in it. To be honest, I've never looked at. Uh, uh, who was in it for that season? It was great yeah, it was, profile. I, I, I look. I look today because I. Because I, I likewise. Obviously, I, I know. I know the three games we played, and it was at the, yeah. the home legs of all. Too young to go to the away away legs. Um, yeah. But the. Uh, but yeah, I just thought. Well, I wonder who. Because it, it's always. I've always thought. God, that was unbelievable. We played those back to back, and part yeah. of me thought. Well, maybe. Um, maybe it was just. You know, uh, European competitions used to maybe their thought. Their thought of a with maybe some rose tinted glasses and it was always good teams in them these days, not like, not like currently, but actually um, Juventus were in there and went out relatively early, but yeah, Cagliari were in it, Tenerife, Crete. These, these were all people who got into the second, third round. They were a good side. Cagliari were a good side back in the day. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I still, I'd still probably have picked them over, over Bayern or, or Inter. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so so does the squad feel that maybe because of the draw that was, that that was as we did well to even get so close in the third round, or, or was there was there was there a lingering sense the rest of the season that oh we could what if we could have gone further? No, you know what? I don't recall one conversation afterwards about we could have gone further. You know, if we got X, Y, or Z. Like I said, I don't think anybody. Uh, you know, we didn't know much about about who else was in the competition. We just looked at the team that we would play next, and there was great anticipation when we drew Bayern. 
Obviously, when we won, there was even greater anticipation that we were facing Inter Milan. Um, and yeah, I think the players relish the opportunity, look forward to it. And yeah, like I said, no, never, ne- never thought about what what could have been um, beforehand and looking beyond because you know you look to too far beyond when, especially if you're not an established side, and then you're asking for trouble. So there was just more than enough on the plate playing two giants like that, and um, we overcame one, but weren't able to do it second time round. You mentioned you, you were um, covering the Leicester game, FN. So um, yeah. our friend Kelvin Goodson said, where did you get the coat you were wearing? I knew I was coming. On the Leicester home <laughs> And it was quite the sight. Yeah. <laughs> Where did I get a coat? Um, uh, where did I buy that coat? You know what? That that coat is about twenty years old, even even older than that. I bought that I think when I was at Wimbledon, um, so that would be certainly no later than ninety nine. In fact, if I it's a winter coat, so I might have even bought that in nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, I bought it in London somewhere at one of the at one of the nice stores somewhere west. I won't give them a name check, but yeah, it's very old. <laughs> yeah, it's a very old coat. Um, our friend Matthew McGregor also wants to ask you about Robert Chase. And if you've got any stories about Robert Chase, because he was quite infamous um, with Norwich fans. Actually, what was he like from a player's perspective? And was there any animosity when the whole ownership debate was was going on? No, not at all. No, I never had many dealings with Mr. Chase. Um, obviously, when I signed for the club uh, a few times over the course of two days. And then I recall going to his office, I think maybe once or twice for something. I can't remember what. His secretary showed me in and, um, you know, we had a chat. over something something very brief. I don't know. What, like I said, I have no idea what it was. And yeah, you know, it was, it was actually quite rare to see him. He came on. Pre, I think he came on end of season tour. We went to uh, Cayman Islands. I think he came on pre-season tour. Maybe we went to Denver. Apart from that, I, I hardly ever saw him. And I, I understand the fans' fans' frustration with the way things uh, finished when he was at the football club. Which year did he leave? About ninety-five or something? Something like that. Yeah, ninety-five, ninety-six, something like that. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I'd long gone by then. So, um, if I'm being honest, yeah, I, yeah. Like I said, I think France frustration is born out of maybe him not investing as much in the club as they thought he should have done and maybe allowing players to leave when it wasn't maybe a good time for them to leave and quite serve the club as well as as it could have done. Um, yeah, you know, but that's these are all byproducts of relegation, aren't they, where people get more and more frustrated, especially when you've had, you know, you know quite a few good years or great years, you know, then that's... That, that animosity or anger is obviously exaggerated. Um, so shame, but, but, you know, I was finding a nice guy to deal with. And, um, yeah, I've got nothing bad to say about him because nothing bad happened with, between him, between myself and him and him personally. So, but, yeah, you know, the fans obviously see it differently. And what was it like? So when you kind of, when you moved on from Norwich and it was to Wimbledon, I mean, I, I remember in my head, I was thinking, well, hang on, they're a much smaller club than us. And, and all right, mm. you know, the, the, there was a reason behind that move. But what was it like in terms of the setup? You know, the professionalism. You know, kind of did it feel quite different to Norwich? Because we all, all always seemed like quite a well-drilled club at that point in time. Yeah, we were. Yeah, and um, firstly, you know, your point is is right. You know, Wimbledon are a smaller club than Norwich, or always have been, and probably always will be. Um, why did I leave Norwich to start with? 
I probably left prematurely, but then you you know your working conditions have to be right, don't they? You have to be, mm. you have to be, you have to feel, you have to be good at, you have to feel good at the football club. You have to feel welcomed. You have to feel appreciated. You have to feel uh, valued. And if you're not, then you know, you, as a player, you know, you have to decide. Well, do you know? Do I ride this out the, the way things are, or do I leave and get on with my career? Footballers' life is short, so. Um, but basically, I don't think you know John Dean even liked me from the minute I walked in the football club for some reason, and, and to this day I've got no idea why. Um, I think the lads, or quite a few of the lads, sort of felt that I was sort of kept a lid on it, you know, because I'm not, I'm not a troublemaker, never have been. I was always a good professional, always got on with my job, a good teammate. Um, and yeah, you know, some some coaches have favourites, or managers have favourites, and. I've never sought to be a favourite of any, you know, of any coach. I'm not interested in that. But some people take a dislike to you for some reason. So that I never had a good feeling with him, you know, from when I signed when Mike was in charge, and then when he became manager the following January, I think it was. Then, even then, I never, I never sort of paid it too much attention. But I always got the feeling that he was looking to try and and, and sideline me, which I thought was a mistake. And uh, yeah, so the writing was on the wall. You could say, and in the end, I sort of, I never pushed it. I never pushed the situation, uh, but I never, I never resisted. I think if I was a bit more mature, more used to top light football at the time, I would just dug my heels in and and just waited when it was, when it suited me more. Um, you know, but you know, you, like I said, I've never been one to, you know, to stick around if people don't value you. Well, I'll tell you what, I certainly didn't value the 28 games of Mike Sharon I had to sit through. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he was... Uh, he, you didn't he, have to sit through him. He was one of the first... Well, I did at that age. That dad said, we're going to football. Um, he, he was he was one of the first people I remember. My my father, who is uh, one of those who feels that it's his job to make sure every every player knows exactly how well he believes he's, he, they are performing. Um, he, That's always nice to hear. Yeah, I think he was he was furious about you going, and he was, but he was far more furious that he was having to watch Mike Sharon play. He did not like that lad at all, um, and unfortunately, yeah, I, I don't. I all I remember is a series of uh, of of he he was seen he seemed to have a specialist specialism in Mike Sharon when he was in uh, at Norwich of glancing headers that would just miss. And he missed so many. Oh, was, that was so nearly a really good header. And that seemed, that's the that's the kind of thing that I really remember of him. So yeah, I think they might have might have maybe had the wrong favourite there. Yeah, well, I mean, Mike came in a few weeks before I left. I left in October '94. Mike came in, I think, the beginning of that season, or or soon after the beginning of that season. And but nothing against him. Um, you know, I uh, I I was getting ready to leave, so my mind was sort of. Um, in fact, my mind wasn't even prepared to go, if I'm being perfectly honest. I was just, I'll tell you what happened. I came back from the World Cup with Nigeria, frustrated that, you know, that I didn't play. I went to the World Cup all that, all that uh, end of season, following the previous one, going to the World Cup with you, your national team, not playing, you know, not even getting one second's action. Nigeria did well, you know, we've got great profile through through the tournament. So if, you, if you're there, but you don't play, you don't feel part of it, it doesn't matter. If you need, even if you go all the way to the final, if Nigeria gone all to the final and won, lifted the, you know, the FIFA trophy, I'd have been pissed off still, you know, let's be honest. Um, so I came out to pre-season, uh, fresh, um, fit, I would say, fitter physically, you know, than, you know, than everybody else, but tired mentally. 
And I asked to get a week off after two weeks of training. Lads, I think went to Romania or something. I got the week off, stayed at home. But I was just shattered anyway, you know. I'd been playing the whole year almost nonstop. So when, when the lads got back and then we had a few more days training, and went to Holland and Belgium and played. And like I said, I was still fit enough and I was, I was sort of ahead of everybody in, in terms of fitness, but I was tired mentally. So going into the season, I really wasn't in, in any kind of mental shape, you know, to be playing. Now I think they would give me an extra three weeks off, say, you know, just go home, just rest, go on holiday and come back. We'll miss you for the first five games of the season. But, you know, we want you for the for October and November onwards and beyond towards the, you know, towards the end of the season. So things are managed a lot better now, play well first, a lot smarter the way they treat you physically and mentally. Um, so that, you know, that never happened. Then if you start the season by not playing well, which I, which I didn't, and then, you know, you, you can't expect to find yourself in the team. So it's not surprising when I started a few games. I can't remember if I started the first game or whatever, but I don't, you know, I never scored. And then I was at the team and then, you know, things just escalated. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I was on the way out very quickly, but I think, like I said, if I dug my heels in, and just said, you know what, I just need to, I need to knuckle down in a couple of weeks' time, my mind will be back in it. Once my mind was back in it, I'd be fine. Because two weeks at Wimbledon, I scored and, you know, I was off and running. So I was fine for the rest of the season. Um, but yeah, you know, if if you don't feel valued, then, you know, it's like I said, it's time to move on. And, uh, you know, the manager then opened the door for me to leave and, you know, I decided to walk through it. We've got one question about kits, which I've got to ask you, FM, because... Lovely, weren't they? Well, so, so Ben Stokes on Twitter has asked, what's your preferred kit? So we're, the first one would be um, the Egg and Crest, the 93-94 Norwich yeah. shirt. The alternative would be the Nigeria 94 shirt, which is, is quite the eclectic number as well. Yeah. Um, what are you having there? I actually prefer the... I, I I'm not a big fan of the Nigerian one, the you know the uh, the all singing and dancing one. I just yeah. like you know the, I like the uh, predominantly green one. I think it's quite a classic looking kit. Um, mm. That's my favourite one, certainly from Nigeria. Yeah, I think that I think that's probably my favourite kit. Actually, you know that you know that I I ever wore. It's classic. It's classic. No, this might be a, this might be a stupid question, but I certainly felt it at Sunday League level. Did you? feel like you played better if you felt like if you liked the kit and if you felt comfortable in it uh no i'm sure that i'd buy games in every kit let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> but then i would have had a few games in every kit as well no, no i was i never paid attention to that. i think just looking at i think looking back on it now years after you think oh that's an ugly site isn't it you know <laughs> i think it looks i think there's much more yeah, many more aesthetics go into making kits now that look that look more fashionable that fans are more likely to buy um, in 2015 and beyond or now or even you know late 90s and as opposed to uh, in the early mid 90s uh, yeah you know they you're not likely to walk around um, in kits that you didn't actually like the look of I think when you were younger you know you might have one or two in your loft or on your wall even, but you're not likely to wear one. Whereas, you know, something like the Brazil kit from 1970, you know, people still wear that one now, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> and, absolutely. Uh, and a few, other, a few other teams, you know, domestic or, you know, in, uh, international teams. But, you know, some, some, were, some were just functional, weren't they? They weren't really pleasing on the eye. Have you got I any... I when I rock up on a Sunday morning and you'd 
Uh, you'd get there a bit late, and the last pair of socks would be that pair of socks that had a great big ladder in them. Let's go for one more question. Uh, we've got Chris Eads on Facebook, and he's asked um, about the fact that you've been, you were quite vocal in terms of your criticism of Liverpool furloughing staff. Um, clearly, they've gone ahead and, and reversed that now, which is the right yeah. call. How do you feel about clubs like Norwich, who, you know, who've done that? And I think he's indicated that AFC Wimbledon have done it as well. Yeah. I mean, clearly that's a different dynamic, but how do you feel about it? Yeah, it is because, um, first of all, starting Wimbledon, Wimbledon are, Wimbledon are a flea compared to Liverpool, aren't they? You know? mm. um, so finances in a, a much more dire strait. They're trying to build a stadium at the moment, which is not even halfway. I drive past it now and again. So um, I think they have to raise, I don't know, about 12 million or something. They've only raised about half of that. So they're looking for extra money to begin with. I understand their position completely. And I understand Norwich as well. And I'm not saying that just because I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm an ex-player and I'm, I'm talking to you guys now, but you know, teams who don't have, don't have the, don't have the deeper pockets, don't have the more recent revenue, um, and, and not had the success or much less likely to be able to claw some of that money back over the next year or so. Um, you know, good chance, you know, unfortunately, or there's a likelihood that Norwich will get relegated this season when we come to some kind of conclusion. So all the way they can start to see, you know, some, you know, small black holes appearing. So to try and stem the tide, if you like, to plug those gaps, yeah, plug, plug those gaps, I think is super important, you know, you know, you know for those sides. For Liverpool, I think it's, a different kettle of fish, you know. Liverpool are one of the giants of world football. Made a lot of money in the last, you know, few years. Of course, they would have spent as well. They've, increased, you know, they've they've given new contracts to players, new signings, etc. They've improved the stand, done lots of good work around Anfield as well. Uh, but you know, the big clubs have the opportunity uh, or find it a, a lot easier to re- recoup those losses, and they've got much, you know, and they've got much wealthier wealthy owners as well. Um, so. It disappointed me that I did that, that they decided to do that. Of course, they're well within the rights to. If other clubs are doing it, Liverpool are a business like everybody else, you know, but they're a private business. And I think when you're a private business, I think it's viewed, or certainly I, I viewed it differently. Um, and I would view it um, the same way if, or when, you know, some of these airlines, you know, would be trying to do the same thing. Um, but in a way, I think, you know, some of the big businesses, they're almost too big to be allowed to fail, aren't they? Um, it's like when the banks were bailed out in 2008-9. It's you know you know we can't have you know four or five of the big banks you know crashing. You know, we, you know it would be unacceptable really to have three or four of the big airlines to crash. And in, and in a similar vein, it'd be it would be it would be devastating um, in football in terms if if club like Liverpool you know find themselves in big trouble. But I don't think that's likely to happen. But it could happen mm-hmm. to Norwich, I think, or there's a greater likelihood it could happen to Norwich, and there's an even greater likelihood that it could happen to Wimbledon. So I think you know people view uh, the medium-sized clubs or the smaller clubs, you know, doing this with less sort of um, uh, frustration. And also, you know, I'm a Liverpoolian, so I understand how Liverpoolians think. I was there for 14 years, and I know that's. I knew that wasn't something that would sit well with the ordinary, ordinary working man. And woman, you know, you know, they wouldn't like that. The thought of their football club is giant, having to go cap in hand to the government. Um, I just wanted, you know, the owners just to say, you know what, this season we're going to be hit, you know, in the pocket. Last season we weren't, we did well. The season before we did fantastically well also. You know, we got to finally the Champions League. We lost last season. 
the final Champions League we won. This year, we're going to win the league. We're going to make some money, probably still. Maybe not as much as we would like to. So just take the hit. You know, this is not going to be, you know, you know, we're not going to find ourselves in this situation in nine months' time, hopefully, and even less likely so in one or or two years' time. If the owners are in it for the long haul, they'll get their money back, and uh, hopefully, you know, everybody will be smiling again. So, yeah, it was it was one from a business point of view and also from a personal point of view. And, and most people I spoke to in, uh, in and around the city, you know, agreed. I... I'm trying to think of one person I know from Liverpool who's associated with the city who actually thought it was a good idea. So I'm glad that they reversed the decision. It's up to other clubs what they want to do. But for me, that was a personal, you know, point of view. And I'm glad that I'm glad that my team and club has um has come to their senses, if you like. I think the thing that really stuck in the claw of Liverpool was that it wasn't very long ago, only a couple of weeks ago, that they announced record profits. Yeah. So I think exactly. to, to mm. do that. And be to sort of gloat about how much money you've got, and then in the next breath go, actually, no, we're not going to pay our staff. I think that was, I think that was a real problem for Liverpool. And as Fan says, the the character of Liverpool as as a city is very sort of is very left wing, very working class. So I think, as Fan says, they've done the right thing. And it's a nice example of where if you if your club does something that you don't like, kick off about it because you can get people to change their mind. Yeah, you know, I you know, I, you know, I would have been. I would have been a hypocrite if I started, you know, to criticise other clubs and and then don't mention my own. In fact, if anything like that ever happens, and I feel my football club has done something that is not right or is is acting in a way that I think is is a little bit distasteful, I'm the first one to say it. And uh, nobody ever comes to sort of bark back at me because they all know that I'm, you know, I'm a little pudding. So there's so they know that I'm saying it, you know, from my heart. I say I said the same about Suarez when he had the incident with. With biting and the and, and the incident with with Patrice Evra as well, I didn't like I didn't like the way that the club you know dealt with it or or reacted. So um, and yeah, if you feel as if you know you should call it out, it doesn't matter you know who you support. You know there's no there's no hypocrisy or no tribalism with regards to like you know with regards to things like that as I'm concerned because then. It doesn't give you the right, you know, to then, you know, to talk or criticise or, talk, you know, talk about anybody else. So if you feel it's got to be said, you know, say and, and not be down with the consequences, but just, you know, make sure or do your best to put your, your, your points across in as much of a measured manner uh, uh, as you can. And, you know, and they're the kind of things that ignite debate and get people talking. You know, we all love the game, but we also want things to be done um, in as good a fashion and as sporting a fashion as we can. Absolutely. Just talking, just talking about the um, Patrice Ever instant, you just reminded me a fan of, of something. I mean, I, I was reflecting before this podcast and, and I don't know why, but it always sticks in my mind that when you signed for Norwich, I think me and my friend were reading the local paper because um, we didn't know a lot about you. You'd come from the lower leagues and yeah. you, you'd been dubbed as, and I can't believe that it was used, but the black Alan Shearer, and it, me and my mate kind of looked at it in a really weird way and was like, oh, well, that's kind of good. But, you know, like quite a weird way to to describe someone. And it just got me thinking, like, what kind of – because, I mean, nowadays, that just you know, the, the newspaper would just be hauled over the coals for something like that, and quite rightly so. But what kind of casual racism or overt racism you experienced, you know, while, while playing the game? 
You know, actually, um, very, very little. Um, over the course of 13 years or so that I was a pro, I can only recall one incident when I was playing for Bournemouth. Um, I don't remember the name of the team um, or much less the player, you know, so I couldn't say it even if I wanted to, you know, or mention the club. Um, yeah, you know, one incident on the pitch uh, with regards with regards to coming from a fellow professional. Yeah, that was the only time. I never played in the 80s and I turned pro late. I didn't turn pro until I was 22. I went to Bournemouth. So the game in the 90s was a lot more sanitised, uh, better policed. I think players were better behaved. There were many more um, foreign nationals in the game. So I think the I think the understanding, the appreciation of different players and different cultures was was far better in the 90s than it was in the 80s. There were one or two things from the stands, yeah, of course, you know, when I was playing, but still, you know, there were, I think... I will say that they were negligible, and certainly compared to what guys who, of my age who who started out at 17, 18, you know, suffered or faced. Um, so, yeah, you know, some of the incidents or places that they went to that they found, you know, pretty difficult to play at, you know, in terms of abuse, um, I never, I never ever experienced. So I'm grateful for that in a way, and I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, the, you know, the game is even cleaner now and, and even better, at least in, in 2020. Um, so, yeah, you know, long may it continue. Of course, it, it's not the case everywhere. It's not the case every week, of course. You know, we still have one or two incidents, of course, at all levels and um, indeed all around the world. So, yeah, but hopefully those things will become fewer and fewer as the, as the years go by. It's time for the Long Come Norwich quiz. Uh, and Cooker, we know that's the reason that you've really come to uh, school, Lorney and Pun into uh, showing them exactly what poor football fans they are. Um, you've got a minute to answer six questions. Lorne, will you do the honours of timing Mr. Okoku for me? Um, and uh, the way it works is you can pause as many times as you want, Efan. Uh, we're going to, we'll go back around to the ones that you've missed, Mastermind yeah. style. Um, and then, yeah, so use your passes up because, you know, you're going to need at least two out of six to beat these two idiots. Um, so <laughs> your minute, Evan, starts now. Who scored for Everton the day you netted four at Goodison? Paul Rydell. Correct. In the same game where you scored your first Norwich goal, who scored a brace? Uh, pass. Uh, which Englishman has scored the most international goals but never played for Man United or Tottenham? Ooh, um... Bobby Charlton? No, no, sorry. No, that's, that's not the case, is it? Move on. Name one of the two Nigerians to both win a Champions League medal in the same team. Sinisi George. Correct. Who was the last striker to win the World Cup Golden Boot whilst playing at a Spanish club? Davos Suka. Correct. Name a Premier League goalkeeper with over 300 appearances that has played in 2020. Pass. Um, in the same game where you scored Time. your first Norwich. Okay, three out of six. Hard Very questions. Soft. And they, they were hard questions. They were hard questions. Yeah, they Very were. I got Paul Ryder out. 
Um, so Paul Rydout, you obviously got. Now, there is yeah. a possibility that this isn't where you got your first Norwich goal. Um, however, <laughs> I, think, I think that you scored your first Norwich goal against Tottenham. Yeah, White Hart Lane, yeah. Yeah, and you lost 5-1. Sorry, yeah. we lost 5-1. Um, uh, and uh, so either of the other two, do you remember who oh, scored? Oh, that was filthy. Uh, ooh, I'll go for Teddy Sheringham. It's correct. Um, there was also, who scored the fifth one? A, a, a Moroccan who I'd forgotten was amazing. Um, so I saw his name on the score sheet and I remembered how brilliant he was. Naeem? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Naeem, yeah. Hell of a player. Um, the Englishman who scores, who's scored the most international goals for England, uh, but never played for Man United or Tottenham. David Platt? No, oh, uh, slightly, slightly higher. Oh, gosh. It's a really obvious one. He has been mentioned on this podcast already. Uh, oh, no, Owen. Played for Man United, did he? Yeah, Alan Shearer? It is oh, Alan Shearer. Alan Shearer. Yeah. Go down cool. the list, and, and actually, you have to get down to about the seventh person until you until one of, they haven't played for one or the other. Uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, Tom Finney, Nat Lofthouse, and Alan Shearer all scored 30. Yeah. Um, and above that, everyone else has been at one of those two clubs. Um, Finidi George and Wayne Ukanu both oh, played yeah. for the Ajax 1995 team. You got that one. Yeah. You got Davos Suka, uh, and the current Premier League goalkeeper who's got over 300 appearances. Oh, um, Ben Foster? Yeah, you could have had David De Gea as well, who's already racked okay. up over 300. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool, so three out of six, to be honest, you're probably going to win by a couple with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's move on to punt. Uh, your time, John, starts now. Who was in goal for the opposition when FN made his Norwich debut as a sub? Um, who were we playing against? Don't give it to him, don't give it to him, Evan. Oh, pass. Uh, Norwich drew 3-3 against Middlesbrough at the end of his first season the first game FN started FN scored who is the Middlesbrough manager? Oh. Can I answer? Brian no, Robson no. Aside from Harry Kane name one of the other two ex-Norwich players to have scored more England goals than Martin Peters Ex-Norwich players? Yeah Pass uh, Who is the only Bulgarian to have won a Champions League medal? Stuchkov Correct. Uh, who are the reigning Asian Cup champions? Grand Uh Name one of the only stadiums still open. You're one of the international teams. Name one of the only stadiums still open that was used in not- World Cup 1966. Villa Park. Uh, correct. Um, who was in golf? Oh. Two at six. So again, I might have got the game wrong but I believe it was a uh, Man United defeat Fan, when you first came off the bench Michael yeah there you go um, and who was the Middlesbrough manager when uh, in the last game of the season Lenny Lawrence correct and um, so yeah. aside from Harry Kane who obviously learned everything about scoring goals by missing chances for Norwich on a short loan spell um, name one of the other two ex-Norwich players uh, who have scored more goals than Martin Peters for England Jeez. Mick Shannon? Mick Shannon, very good, yeah. And the other one? I'd just like to say at this point, I am fucked. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mad, is showing mad trivia skills here. Um, yeah, uh, so the other one is also a loan signing like Harry Kane was, but slightly more successful, well, a lot more successful than Harry Kane was loan-wise. Oh, uh, well, that's a tough Crouchy. Scott Parker? Peter Crouchy. Crouchy, Crouchy. Yeah, Crouch. Got part of England goals and Martin yeah. Peters. Um, the, right, you've got Stoichkov. Um, Qatar beat Japan 3-1 in the last Asian Cup last year. That was who we were after. Um, um, and, yeah, the, the four 
grounds. You've got uh, Villa Park. You also could have had Old Trafford, Goodison, and Hillsborough that were all used. Yeah. Still, still like. So three uh, for Fan, two for for Punt. So Lorne, um can you get three and take it to a tie break? No. Um, I've got one easy question. Got one definitely easy question. Um, <laughs> you're and also uh, Punt is going to be really cross about uh, something in about ten seconds. Uh, really, your time starts now. Who was in goal when Fan and Norwich beat Liverpool in 1993? Uh, David James. Which told you which which midfielder <laughs> did Fan replace as a half-time substitute in the game he scored his first Norwich goal? Uh, um, who would have been in midfield then? That's the game. Uh, the game yeah. Oh, Scott. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, which former Liverpool player, now at Man City player, has scored the same number of England goals as Trevor Francis? Uh, Sterling. Uh, who's the only Belarusian to win a Champions League medal? Oh, this is going to be obvious when you say it, isn't it? Um, I've got that one. Pass. Yeah, that's really helpful. Who's the second highest African player? Who's the highest scoring African player? Second highest scoring African player in Premier League history? The one uh, after Dropper. Carnu? No. I've got that one uh, as well. Uh, which Irishman scored 126 Premier League goals? Damien Duff. No. Um, Robbie Robbie Keane. No, because you said pass, you said pass, and then the time went out anyway. And the time, yeah, the time had gone, mate. You, you were done. You were done. Yeah. So um, I appreciate. If you not can sleep at night. That's fine. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> you, the thing is, though, he gave but... you the team. He gave yeah, you the I, team. I, first I, question. I, that's a shocker. Listen, shush. You all know that I'm going to give you the tiebreaker anyway. So FM wins yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that he only won it by a point. It really does feel actually like he was quite because he knew all of your questions as well. Was, so let's go was back good to it. You were really good, Efan. What I would say it. is because Efan is a gent, he'll accept that I also got three. I, no, I think, I, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> of all the footballers, of all the footballers <laughs> that we've interviewed on this podcast, how many of them have seen have been in any way uncompetitive or happy to like give anyone any point? <laughs> um, no right, so which, which midfielder did you replace? And actually, let's give Punt a go because he wasn't actually on the pitch that day. And um, who did uh, who did Effen come on as a halftime substitute for the mm. first time he scored an orange goal? Let's go, Gary Megson. No. Do you remember a fan? Uh, I'll go with uh, oh, uh, Andy Johnson. No, David Phillips. Oh, I feel okay. Yeah. Um, you got Sterling, uh, Alexander Kleb. Oh, sorry, I should have given yeah, you a chance. Yeah, Kleb, yeah, at Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, and the second highest scoring African player? Uh, I think it's uh, Yakuba, isn't it? No, it's not. The dropper? It could be. Yeah. Like, he, goes, he doesn't check these properly. It goes Drogba and then Adebayor. Oh, Adebayo, okay. Adebayo, yeah. And then, yes, uh, Robbie Keane uh, yeah. with 126. So um, the tiebreaker that we had um, in in hand is from when I was looking at the England scoring charts. Um, so, Efan, you can you can guess first, even though we all know you've really won already. Um, how many England goals did Kevin Keegan score? Oh, uh, I'm going to say 27. Okay, I need an exact number from you, please, John. Um, I was going to go for about 25. So there you go, I'll go 25. Okay, 25 is about 25. Yeah. Uh, what, what number would you go for that's about? I would go much lower, um, 15. 
Okay, well that, that's annoying because you're you're sort of equally either side of it. It's, it's twenty. Um, so, uh, okay. yeah. so, so, so therefore, uh, it doesn't change anything. Efren has still won and is the champion for for today. And uh, Efren, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time from your lockdown um, abode. Cheers, guys. Hopefully, we'll speak to you again uh, maybe next season when hopefully things are a lot more normal. Thanks, Pump. Yeah. Thanks, Lord. Everyone else, my name. Yeah.